0: Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein.
1: I am Brian Brinkman.
0: You're tuned in to episode 119 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands, sometimes they have been because the new generation of jam bands is really hot, but usually they're not. And we know that uh, obviously we love fish. We are huge Fish fans, especially coming off of a super hot spring 2023 tour that, that they just had. Sometimes the are proud with Fish fans. They get a bit myopic. They only pay attention to their favorite bands. They can list all of the different custom dresses that John Fishman had and whether or not he was wearing a hoodie under them because his tootsies got cold. But you talk about other bands, they kind of look at you funny, and we're always trying to combat that.
1: We are... And you know, it's a difficult job here over in BTP HQ. I mean, it became so difficult that we had to take about two and a half years off before we could resume activities. Such a difficult job. You probably haven't heard from us in six weeks and wondered, hey, what's going on? Are these guys going to do an April episode? Fish is playing their best tour in 18 months. Goose is going crazy. Where the hell is Beyond the Pond? What the hell is going on? Well, we're back and we're back with an episode that we are very, very excited about. And we've actually. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but I'm pretty confident that we can do this. I think that this is one of two episodes that are coming to you in May 2023. The second may come just like June 2nd or June 3rd, but you know, we got a lot coming to you right now. We got a lot churning in our brains, and we're very excited to get back in front of our microphones and chat music, chat fish, chat other bands. And in this episode, we are turning the clock back 10 years. To 2013, where we're going to do an examination of Fish's jamming style across the 2013 year, their 30th anniversary, a very, very big and very important year of Fish, as well as we're going to dive into some albums that we absolutely love. Plus, getting really, really personal. This is going to be one of those confessional episodes where we talk about uh, who we were before we were dads, what was going through our heads, what was going on in our minds when um, the world was a little less crazy, but we still thought things were pretty intense for a variety of reasons.
0: Absolutely. that All of that and then some uh, 2013 means a lot to me. It's a year for fish. I'll uh, get into some more discussion of the 2013, what it meant to me in a bit, but... Some of the themes you can expect to hear in this episode include using the past to fuel the future. Was 2013 the last good year and savoring the challenge. And on that note, we're actually before we get to some fish, we're going to jump into uh, our mailbag because uh, we do have one. If you've got some questions for us, hit us up at Gmail. It's uh, beyond the what is it beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com
1: all one word beyond beyond the pond podcast at gmail.com. And we have a email here from BTP royalty is really the only way to put it. Our friend from the great white North, a man that I don't want to be too presumptive here. I I believe he is a Toronto Maple Leafs diehard. And I hope he that, is.
0: Oh, he is.
1: He is. He is. I didn't want to just assume that, you know, Ontario based, Scotty King roots for the Maple Leafs. I know that they take their hockey as seriously as I take my basketball. And he probably takes his basketball pretty seriously as well. But our good friend, Scotty King, I hope that this mailbag and I hope that this episode come out while the Leafs are still in the playoffs. We are rooting for you here in BTP Central. He has an excellent question that is both, I think, insightful, I think thoughtful. It is also very um, timely for the episode that we're going to talk about as we will discuss here. So Scott goes, Hey guys. So I was on Twitter the other night during the Greek shows, those fantastic Greek shows, uh, from mid April that fish played. And I was wondering why I was wondering to myself, why am I still on Twitter considering how gross it's gotten in the last few months? The short answer is sports and music, but obviously it's the community on show nights that I'm looking for. Fish slash jam Twitter is something that really became its own thing and really fueled a place in my heart, or filled a place in my heart, excuse me, after the collapse of message boards in the late aughts. My question, now that you both have ostensibly left Twitter, how are you filling that void in your life? Do you miss it? And what do you predict is the future of music Twitter? I owe many friendships, including yours, to this and wonder if we'll ever get it back. He finally, he, he says as well, thanks for bringing BTP back. We are better off for you guys doing all you do. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scotty. You are one of the reasons that we do what we do. Um, I think this is a really interesting question and I think that I, we are going to have diverging answers. Um, I am completely off social media, Dave. I know that you have moved over to, um, uh, Indie Twitter, otherwise known as Mastodon, um, Tell me,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell me um, uh, how you filled, and and I kind of gave the lead, I buried the lead a little bit there, but um, tell me how you have filled the void of Twitter, and kind of w- what your thoughts are in terms of uh, online music discourse and just discourse in general at this point.
0: Well, I don't post on Twitter anymore. I still have an account. Sometimes I'll jet over there, kind of just to keep up on some sports. Discourse from sports writers, see what they have to say about my Mets and my Knicks. And, um, but I don't post there anymore because it's become a cesspool. It's just become this very strange, it doesn't even really work. Ever since, uh, Elon and all his wisdom got rid of third party apps, I can't use Tweetbot. I mean, the Twitter app itself sucks. So there's just, it's not, it's not fun. It's kind of just like walking through like the apocalypse and seeing like the zombies hanging out. And sometimes the zombies will still like, tweet at you but you say fuck I gotta I got get out of here um, so yeah I moved over to Mastodon um, the server that I was on is uh, called social. it's got a lot of heads a lot of uh, people that I used to were on fish twitter who I became friendly with kind of migrated over there um, so there's actually Mastodon for me right now it's actually very good for some music conversations it almost in one sense kind of feels at like the old days because at this point I'm basically friendly often in real life with all the people that I tend to follow on Mastodon, so it's, it's a good way to keep in touch. Um, it still doesn't come close to Twitter for doing like watching live sports, live sports tweeting. I think journalists are gradually moving over to that direction now that they've seen that Twitter, like I said, is a weird cesspool, but... If I really want to keep up on the news, I could read the Times, I could read the Post, I could read NPR, so there's plenty of other places that I can keep up the news without going to Mastodon. But certainly, during the most recent run of Fish and Goose shows, it's been a lively place. There's been a lot of uh, live tweeting, live commenting, like people, kind of feels like Twitter in the old days, in the sense that, you know, people watching the shows, commenting on the same, doing some ranking, uh, live set list updates, so... It's a scratch, a lot of music itch. It's done a pretty good job of filling the void. Sports and journalism and news, not so much, but that's okay. Like I said, I've got other ways of getting outlets for that. So uh, if you're hearing me, it's probably only a matter of time before uh, the Beyond the Pond account leaves Twitter entirely and goes to Mastodon, so uh, come and join us. The water's fine. It's got a little bit of a learning curve, but what doesn't?
1: Yeah, all co- all good message boards should have a little bit of a learning curve. I feel like that when I first got into online message boards in the 2000s, there was, you know, just figuring out just like little bits of HTML so that you could repost things and you could post pictures and GIFs and whatnot. Um I it's interesting cuz you and um our good buddy Josh Carver uh are are on Mastodon and I think yep. you, both, you both really enjoy it. I am off everything. Um, I left in the fall, and my rationale was really... I just kind of got sick of it. I got sick of the discourse. I got sick of the noise, and I kind of rationalized that I have a lot of really close friends that I want to stay in touch with on a very regular basis, and close friends who fulfill a lot of different communication needs for me from a recommendation standpoint, from a nerding out deep diving standpoint, from an argumentative and debate standpoint, uh, from an information standpoint, from a learning standpoint and I kind of was like like I had this realization about a year and a half ago I was on winter break and I was taking a picture of my kids and I immediately posted on Instagram and I was checking to see the likes that it got. And I kind of had this like really weird epiphany of like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, why can't I just take a picture of my kids and just have a picture of my kids? And that kind of sent me down this spiral of like, why am I sharing all of these aspects of my life? And why is that something that like, for me, matters to me? I started thinking about that. I know like a lot of people enjoy that. And there was a point in my life where I really enjoyed that. I just got to a point where I couldn't answer the question anymore. And because I couldn't answer the question anymore, I was like, that's probably not a good thing for me if like, I'm just kind of doing this haphazardly. And so I started taking breaks last year and then I ultimately left in the fall. I left both. I'd left Facebook back in 2017, which I feel like Facebook is now just for old Trumpers uh, and really, you know, and just like businesses at this point in time. Um, Yeah.
0: Facebook is, um, (laughs) I use Facebook because, uh, the apartment building, my co-op, has a Facebook page. Okay. And I use it because I want to see what people have for sale and people mm. bitching about the board and <laughs> all the Enta's complaining about this, that, and the other thing. And then, uh, 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 crime, crime, crime. It's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it's if I want to keep up on the gossip in the building, Facebook is good. Good for birthdays. So I can say, oh, that's his birthday. Great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. But I, I kind of – so when I, when I decided to ultimately leave, I, I had two worries, one of which was how am I going to keep up with new music and the other of which was how am I going to keep updated on what's going on in the world? And I kind of realized, as I said a couple minutes ago, I've got a lot of close friends in my life who are going to constantly keep me updated with new music. And I'm cool reading music reviews and checking music blogs and getting a sense of what music is out there. And then from a news standpoint, I think this is, you were kind of touching on this. Um, I used to think during like the election and during like the Trump administration, that I had to be on Twitter to know exactly what people's reactions were when something crazy would happen. And then I started thinking about how many things happened that seemed crazy during the Trump administration that had absolutely no consequences. It was just Trump said something awful and everyone freaked out about it. And everyone collectively yelled about it on Twitter. And then 48 hours later, they moved on to something else. Mm. And I realized like, I follow the news closely. I read a newspaper every day. I read uh, news magazines uh, on a regular basis. I, I read, I listen to podcasts, news podcasts on a regular basis and foreign affair and politics podcasts, blah, blah, blah. I know what's going on. I just need to remove the reaction out of my life and just react to it myself. And so those two things pushed me away. made me like feel confident that I could step away. And at this point in time, like I had the best time during the fish and goose tours this spring, just texting with people. And I was just like, these are the people I need to talk to like Dave's opinion about a, uh, uneven goose second set means a whole hell of a lot more to me than some random person. Even though that random person could be a friend at some point in my life or in a different life, it's, they're not really at this point in time. And so for me, it became all about immediate person to person connection. And I feel much more clear headed and I feel way better having these people in my life immediately rather than just like the, you know, unknown beyond us. Yeah, I certainly
0: understand all that. Um, I think I post less. I use more stories as opposed to actual photos. I also do it just to take footage of uh, rock shows that kind of have mm-hmm. like an Baffling online diary, some videos, online diary, just some videos of the shows I saw, what those sounded like. Uh, you know, that's kind of, that's a fun thing to do. But I could certainly see anyone's argument for not wanting to use, use social media.
1: Whatever you decide to do, Scotty, you know that you've got us here at Beyond the Pond and always send us an email, oh, yeah. shoot us a WhatsApp, however, however, however best to uh, communicate across that uh, imaginary border between our countries.
0: And on that note, let's get to the fish.
1: All right, so this episode is a celebration of and a focus on the year 2013. Um, looking back on our now 120 episodes plus bonus episodes here and there, we only did one 2013 jam, which was all the way back in either, I think, episode 8 when we did the Reading Down with Disease. And so we were thinking, it's really? the 10th. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's all we did. That's it. That's, that's,
0: that's amazing.
1: That's, ama- that's amazing. So we were thinking as we were looking at this, uh, you know, just thinking about this year. It's 10th anniversary of 2013. 2013 was a really formative year in fish history. There also were a ton of really great records. And uh, we were both at very different points in our lives than we are. Now, 10 years later. Um, so we wanted to kind of dive into what this year meant from afar. And I kind of want to start this with a couple questions because we're going to, we're going to talk about fish here first, and then we will jump into some, some other music. Um, 2013 comes off of a breakthrough period in fish's career. I think that both of us loved what was happening in summer 2012, especially towards the end of the summer when fish played a stunning three night stand at Dick's sporting goods park, including the fuck your face show. One of the best fish shows of all time. One of the best fish shows of the 3.0, 4.0 era. And then two stunning shows to back it up. And then a really solid the Dick's light, the Dick's sand. Um, and then a very solid and very impressive, um, new year's Eve run from, uh, uh, Madison square garden that featured an excellent tweezer an excellent careening and excellent disease. Um, Going into 2013, we all knew this is their 30th year. And there was a lot of, I think, uh, how do I put it? There there was a real kind of emotional pull for this year, I felt, going into it. Because just 10 years prior to this was 2003, which at the time was still kind of shrouded in darkness. A lot of people hadn't gone back and listened to a lot of 2.0. And so this was the year they were going to celebrate overtly their 30th anniversary. And the band just sounded like they were coming out of a very, very challenging four year period where they had to relearn how it was to be fish and and come out and become this band that they were going to become over the next 10 years, next four or five years, I guess at that point, um, you know, just thinking ahead to the late 2010s. But anyway, thinking about this year in full kind of starting this out, Dave, what do you think were fish's goals going into 2013?
0: I think their biggest goal is to prove that the second half of 2012 wasn't a fluke, mm. because in my mind, summer 2012 was when they found that elusive higher gear. I think that Trey has even mentioned this in um, the New York Times interview he did with David Marchese back in 2019, that coming back from being broken up in 2019 through 2011 little tentative they had their moments but he even said that given all that's occurred kind of trying i think his words are something like trying to find a way to play without fear actually took longer than he may have anticipated
1: Mm, yeah
0: i mean to me that kind of bears out. I know I think certainly fall 2009 had some amazing shows. Fall 2010 had some great shows. For me, 2011 is probably the biggest crapshoot out of those three years. Mm-hmm. But definitely, at 2012, to me, is the first year where you're thinking, like, okay, Fish could be back. There's Big Roots of Potential. There's, as you said, the 831-12 uh, the 831 12 show, the Fuck Your Face show. Also, um... August 19, 2012, from Bill Graham. That's an incredible show. Really, that to me is kind of when Fish finally started to kind of sound like Fish again, take off some of the training wheels. So the goal in 2013, in addition to celebrating the 30th year together as a band, just saying, how can we take this momentum from 2012, continue it on into the year, and then see where that takes us? And I think that they succeeded in a major way. I mean, summer from the jump... I think the second show that summer twenty thirteen is uh, was it July fifth twenty thirteen from yeah. Saratoga Springs, phenomenal show, bonkers second set, great light, Mango Song just really hit the ground running. I was at that show. Um, I was standing next to a dog that was covered in glow sticks, which I thought was kind of disturbing. But aside from that, I said, "Wow, twenty twelve wasn't an illusion." fish is back this is a reason to get excited
1: yeah i mean i it's hard to dispute anything you said i agree with it i think um you know the only things to add is uh two things changed when 2013 opened which was the band uh changed their stage setup uh for the first time in 3.0 um quick run through historically from mid 80s to the end of 1998 they were always in the straight line page trey mike fish 99 2000 mike and trey switched and fishman came in between them kind of slightly offset to give the the rhythm the center focus of the show uh, of of each concert as as the band was really focused on groove and rhythm at that point in time um 2.0 was the most standard rock setup where mike and trey flipped Fishman was on this big riser and then when they came back in 2009 famously they came back in a straight line uh the way that they had been in the 90s and they're kind of you know as that was as it was known the glory period at that point and then in 2013 they flipped and they've been in the same stage setup ever since where Trey and Mike are the same spot but Fishman's slightly askew on the floor behind a small riser behind Trey and I remember listening to an interview right before the tour started and Trey mentioned how he wanted to hear Fishman without a monitor. He just wanted to hear Fishman's drum kit, right? right every right. time he played that he had to hear that. And that plus the lighting rig changed. And my personal favorite lighting rig that the band used in all of the 3.0, 4.0 period was this lighting rig from 2013 to 2015 um, that had almost like a talking head, stop making sense feel to it um Mm -hmm. it was just very very cool like solo cans plus um uh the washes of light that came from the screen behind them it just had a very very unique feel to it specifically though the stage setup it seemed to indicate a band that was both trying to get back to their roots while also take another level. And that Trey needed to hear Fishman so that they could trust each other when they went out onto jamming excursions. And I think to your points, you hear a band that is suddenly confident in a way that they hadn't been since, I mean, parts of late 1.0, but I mean, we're kind of stretching back to 1997 in terms of like 98, in terms of like, aggressive, arrogant confidence that the band had at that point without any sort of reservations, you mix that with the really unique jamming tendencies that they found towards the tail end of, of, um, 2012. And you think about the tight rotation they came out with during the summer and the fact that they really just wanted to focus on playing songs really tight, but not incorporating too many songs and allowing a song that had a chance to breathe to breathe. And there are many moments you mentioned, the SPAC 7.5 second set, the next night, the Carini, uh, and the Split Open and Melt, um, there's cross and Painless from PNC, some really good jamming in uh, Stash and Light from Merriweather. Um the Chicago Run has a really good Energy and Ghost, I mean, so on and so forth. There were a lot of jams that came out of unique places that we would not have heard a year prior. Um, how do you think? Kind of switching gears, when you look at twenty thirteen now from the past, how do you think that it's impacted the band over the last twenty years? What what or over the last ten years? Excuse me. What things did they accomplish in twenty thirteen, and how have those impacted where the band has gone since then?
0: It seems to me that with twenty thirteen, it they were able to kind of prove to themselves that yeah. We still can do this. We haven't lost our fastball. Right now, we're sober. We're healthy. We're playing incredible shows. This is as good as we've been since 1997, 1998. And there's no fucking reason that we can't do this next year, and the year after that, and the year after that. If we have to adjust our touring schedule to play fewer shows to be available for our families, we can do that. But... I mean that year, I think proved to the fans that had to prove to the band themselves that they were uh, were fully fully recovered from their breakup.
1: Yeah, it does that, and then you know I think going forward, as we're going to get into, we've got four jams to to discuss here. Um, the chances that they take and the areas of success that they find musically, I find in. Um, both the tightness with which they were jamming, um, and then the atmospheric sounds that they would discover and kind of de- lean into, you hear the germinations of what would happen two summers later in summer 2015, and specifically at Magnaball, where this band experimented on an extremely high level with stunning ease, um, and with a lot of patience, and empathy for where the other person was coming from. There's a lot of listening that happens in summer 2015 that is really, really impressive to listen back to even eight years later. And then going forward, you know, 2017 with the Baker's Dozen, the reemergence of 25-plus-minute jams that are kind of scattered anywhere. Any song can be jammed during any show at any point in time. 2013 is still kind of the era where the only jam songs we're going to get in set one are like stash and split open and melt four years later, we're getting breath and burning and moment dance jamming heavily in set one. And we're getting a 30 minute lawn boy and we're getting, um, uh, we're getting, you know, like Dick's night one, 2018, these just like extended jams everywhere throughout the show. And all of this kind of leads to where they are now, obviously, like the pandemic shut down most of 2020 and early 2021, But since they've come back in 2021, there's been a freedom with which the band has played where setless structure just means nothing and jamming happens at will and it is extended in ways that 10 years ago we would have thought unimaginable. If you could go back to 2013 pre-Tahoe Tweezer and tell someone that, Fish is going to play a 38-minute long jam, another 36-minute tweezer, um, a 47-minute long jam, a 44-minute long tweezer, followed by a 20-minute simple. Like There are things that happen over the next 10 years that are a direct result of what they accomplished here. Um, Before we jump to these jams, one last question for you. What was your favorite show of Fish 2013 and why?
0: Probably... October 29, 2013, from the Santander Arena in, is that Reading, Pennsylvania?
1: Yes. Reading,
0: PA. That was Reading, PA. That was um, a phenomenon that doesn't really happen much anymore, which was the you, you Snooze, You Lose show. That was like a relatively tiny arena in a blue collar city in Pennsylvania, not that close to Philadelphia. I think it was like a Tuesday night or Wednesday night. I did not go. But um, in addition to having an excellent first set in a very, very sludgy 14-plus minute 20 years later, that show has the famous Redding, Downward Disease, oh, the man. melodic, running down a hill, Almond's Brothers, Wet Dream Fantasy, Downward Disease. That is my favorite version of the song ever played and probably in the top five of my favorite fish jams of all time. The first time I heard that song I, like, stopped on the street. I just, like, stopped, looked at my phone, and said, holy shit, is this happening? I think it's just happening. (laughs) And that's uh, a lot of good shows, but just because of that jam alone and uh, unique set one choices and kind of a fierce level of jamming throughout, probably my favorite show in 2013. And just um, for the sake of honorable mention, the second one would probably be... uh, October 27, 2013 from Hartford, Connecticut, which I was at, which is just, um, Lou Reed had died that day, so they opened with like, an excellent type one, like 12-minute rock and roll, that's got the great warm tweezer in the second set, big golden age, just, you know, very excellent overall show on my home turf, so that was two shows, Sorry.
1: Don't be, because I have two shows as well, um, and coincidentally, they're both from basically the same week as yours. I, you, you, everything you said was was perfect. In that reading disease, I I seem to recall we had a conversation like six months ago. You, me, and Josh about go back through every single tweet, every 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 single disease in fish history. There's a very strong argument to be made that the Redding disease is the best Down disease. And I remember we all went through the jam chart and we're like, I think it actually is the best Down disease ever played, which sounds crazy to say a a classic 1.0 song having its best version 3.0, but like, and this is not a knock on any others, like that, that disease has something in it that is one of the most special things I've ever heard fish, fish ever do. So I, I, I still remember vividly getting back to my apartment in Korea and jumping online and people were freaking out about that disease and everyone was predicting that they were going to play eat a peach two nights later, which did not happen. Um, <laughs> no. but speaking of wingsuit, my favorite show of 2013 is 11 2013, the night after wingsuit. Mm. Um, this is you, you mentioned a, a thing in fish lore that I absolutely love, which is the, the snooze you lose show. Um, one of my other things is the night after the night you know or or the night before the night it it kind of happens uh like um uh reading is kind of the night before the night vibe where like everyone's thinking about Halloween and so Fish throws down the night before it it's why twelve thirty is always the best show, but it's why the night after a festival sometimes is is the best show, or it's why the night after a big run a big you know hyped up run or um the New Year's Day show sometimes is really really good because the band has had all this pent up energy and adrenaline going into Halloween. And then that's all done. And the next night you think about Halloween 98, for example, uh, you think about um, uh, Coral Gables, Florida 96, you know, these shows have these defining moments after Halloween where they use what they did in Halloween on the next show. Eleven One one has a really good set first set, Just great song selection. The band just sounds loose. They sound grateful at some point. Trey, um, thanks the crowd so much for giving them what they gave them the night before, where they allowed them to unveil Wingsuit, an extremely controversial moment in Fish history that I still argue is the most important moment of 3.0. Um, come to see me at my other blog where I just talk about Wingsuit, uh, to debate me on that, um, but then he play, they play halfway to the moon, and he mentions that they're in the studio uh, uh, tracking a record. And everyone kind of gets excited because they haven't had a record out since Joy. But then the second set has one of my favorite versions of Twist ever with this under the under pressure peak that is just glorious and makes me weep every time I hear it. Um, it has an amazing light in it, an incredible Choctaw's torture um, that's like condensed but like still really exciting. Uh, Makasupa Policeman with a bunch of references to favorite British bands and to Worst Presidents um, and to Strains of Marijuana. Just amazing, super fun, but also like kind of weighty show where it felt like what happened the night before was really impactful and really important. And they wanted to showcase and express their, their feelings on that going forward. Um, But since you gave two, I'm going to give two. And this completes our cycle of this overall week of excellent fish in late October, early November, 2013. And that is 1025, 2013, night one of Worcester. Um,
0: You love that show.
1: I love this show. This is, (laughs) to me... It is a really
0: really fucking good show.
1: It's just such a... It's like they're in Worcester and they play a very classic set list. And there's not a ton of experimentation, but the second set flows really, really well in a way that is usually opposite of how I love a second set. Because there's like 11 songs in it and they just keep going and they get to a really cool moment in a jam and they go into another song. But then they get into a really cool moment of that song and then they go into another song. There's just like a lot of good micro jamming. I'm a huge, huge fan of it. I remember listening to that as I was getting ready to get on the bus to go to Chuncheon to run a marathon. So I have like really good vibes about that show. But every time I listen back to it, I'm convinced that that is the 30th anniversary show. The set list, the energy, the party atmosphere, the Red Sox World Series updates, the the idea of fans congregating in Worcester, Massachusetts in late October to see fish on a Friday and Saturday night. I just get chills thinking about it. It's just like ooey-gooey fish lore. And um, it, to me, sounds like the 30th anniversary celebration show. So um, we'd be so lucky if we could get a show like that here in 2023.
0: I was not at that show. I was at the next two nights. I recall I was home at my parents' house that Friday evening, getting ready to go see them on Saturday. And in twenty thirteen they did not stream every show, so you had to use what was called Mixler. <laughs> Friendly people would hold their phone up and stream the show for you. So I remember being on my childhood bed listening to a mixler stream of that show, thinking, Wow, hit after hit after hit. So
1: it's a great set show. Great
0: show. They got to go back to Worcester. I don't know why they don't. It's like...
1: There's got to be something wrong with the venue because that is just such a perfect place to see fish.
0: It's a live nation venue, so that's not it. It just must be maybe old infrastructure that won't deal with the sound and or the lighting rig because there's no fish like minor league hockey arena in New England Rust Belt fish.
1: That's it. (laughs) That's the fish. Um so we mentioned we had four jams that we wanted to discuss here in this episode. So um, as we got into this, because we're going to kind of turn this into a f- like full-flowing conversation about these jams, we're going to talk about the Rock and Roll from July twelfth, 2013 at Jones Beach, the Tweezer from October twentieth, 2013 in Hampton, Virginia, the Carini from 1031, 2013 in Atlantic City, and then the Downward Disease from 1229 2013 at MSG. Four of our favorite jams of 2013, and four jams that thematically we thought um, had, a, had, a, had a strong representation of fish in 2013. So let's dive into the rock and roll. Um, what are your thoughts on this jam overall? How, where do you think this represents about fish 2013?
0: This is an excellent version of a very tight. Type 1.5 jamming. Of course, we say type 2. That's where they kind of do a complete, uh, like a key change and throw out, the strong, uh, throw out the song structure entirely, whereas type 1 is kind of just Trey taking solos over chord changes. This is a type 1.5. It's kind of in between. Uh, there might be a bit of a chord, uh, there might be a key change of the last five minutes. Mostly, it's just very tight and very joyous, and it's just an excellent example of something... It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's very energetic. And um, let me tell you, the crowd at that show needed something energetic to uh, keep them away from the fact that they're all drenched and <laughs> cold and miserable. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But would you say, Brian, that um, what do you think is your pick for the best fish cover? Is it this song?
1: This is my pick. This is my favorite fish cover. Um okay I, I'm a huge i love the loaded cover overall from 98 um i like many fish fans was introduced to the velvet underground via that cover or via that 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 cover album from Halloween 98 and this song just always seemed to me like fish as a classic rock band it's like the closest that they've come to fully emulating one of these classic rock songs whenever they play it and it just kind of exemplifies everything I love about a fish show. I think about the Berkeley version that just happened from this past spring that caps off this four song second set with a 45 minute tweezer and a, or 44 minute tweezer and a uh, 20 minute simple. Um, it just, it's joyous. It speaks to the fish energy. I, I absolutely love it, but you're, you're absolutely right. The, um, the type 1.5 nature of this jam is so cool. It reminds me of, uh, August 8th, 2009, another excellent rock and roll, 23 minutes, all is kind of hyper-contained within the larger musical theme of rock and roll um, before going back into it. And this one, the only thing it doesn't do is go back into rock and roll It instead segues into 2001 uh, really, really nicely. But um, I'm curious, what is your pick for the best covers? Is is it this or just something else?
0: No, it's probably rock and roll. Just... um... It clearly means a lot to the band. They covered Loaded on Halloween 1998. As I mentioned earlier, when Lou Reed died on October 27th, 2013, they opened the show to rock and roll because that's Fish's Fish's Velvet Underground song. And it can often be used to punk. It's part of great sets. It can be used to put a cherry on the top of a great set. Um, I've seen it in the encore slot. fact is... Nobody is going to be disappointed when fish plays rock and roll. So it's the best. It's just yeah.
1: it's joyous and it's all right. Um, this jam also makes me think a lot about just Trey's playing from 2012 to 2015, which was just such a strong era for him musically. Um, and it really was reflected uh, in the overall band's sound. I love. The synth sounds that Trey has really brought to the table here in the last couple of years, the the 4.0 Jedi pedal sounds, I think they've added an incredible amount to the band. I think they've added an incredible amount to their jamming. But when I go back and I listen to Trey in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, I hear a guitarist who I want to tread lightly on what I'm going to say here because I don't want to necessarily offend people, but I don't think I'm saying anything offensive. I think that this was the last great peak for Trey as a guitarist. I think that since this period, 2012 to 2015, he has more intentionally used effects to patch up uh, maybe a step that he's lost in his overall playing. And I think that's just age. I don't think that's practice. I don't think it's sloppiness. I think no, it's just
0: just age is Yeah. Dexterity. He
1: just, he's slower, less dexterous than, than he was ten years ago. So I don't really think it's controversial, but this era, it's you know, when he got sober and picked up his guitar again and started playing, to me, everything he was working for was what we hear across a four year period from twenty twelve to twenty fifteen.
0: I will say that. I think the spring tour twenty twenty three, which is a different topic or a different podcast, has a level of dexterity to like so which I haven't seen since twenty fifteen.
1: I would agree I don't with know that if
0: completely. It was his best playing since twenty fifteen. He kind of unlocked whether I don't you know, I have no idea what the physical feeling of his fingers are as he gets closer and closer to age sixty. Even at age forty three, sometimes I'll pick up a guitar and think, hmm, my fingers are slower and lumpier than they were ten years ago. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree certainly that a lot of the effects, the effects pedal, the shoegaze, walls, and noise of sound that he's been using over the past few years may have been to, you know, cover up for Missing a Step or Two. Also, just the name of, like, innovation, it's an arms race. He who has the most toys on stage wins. Yeah. <laughs> but no, uh, no discussion... Of July 12, 2013, can't end without talking about the weather at that show. Mm. I was at that show. First of all, people forget that for summer at 13, the weather was awful. This was the rain tour. This was in Chicago. The scary, scary thunderstorms postponed one of the shows in order the islands. So they had to make up the next night with three sets. And then the third show of that run also... Had like a ninety minute separate because of t- like torrential downpours. There was a lot of water in the sky. This is the big fish climate change tour. This I can't remember the last time it rained this much on summer tour. They had so, to restru- re- uh,
1: reschedule a show that was canceled in Toronto and to the right. The I mean, it was just
0: or the flood. Yes, yeah.
1: and then it was they got out west, and the west was going through a f- f- one in four hundred year drought. And every show out West was completely dry and beautiful. (laughs)
0: So I was at the Jones Beach 2013 show, but I did not see this rock and roll in person because for the only time in my life, hopefully, I left the show during set break because I was drenched and shivering and miserable and I had water up to my socks and my shorts and my shoes got destroyed and some friendly guy gave me, like, a factory-sealed airplane-sized bottle of, like, Jim Beam in the bathroom, so this will help you. <laughs> and I drank it, and it, it was factory-sealed. I figured he wasn't going to dose me. It warmed me up, but it wasn't enough. So me and a buddy actually left that set break. And The second set was awesome, and supposedly the rain stopped around 10 o'clock, but it's not only the most uncomfortable I've been at fish, it might've been the most uncomfortable I've been in my life. (laughs) So that's why I, I, that's my sad story of having to leave a fish early.
1: Well, I just remember Trey came out and goes before they started playing rock and roll, we're practicing safe music. And then they dove into rock and roll, 2001 Tweezer, cities, the wedge, just an awesome, awesome segment of music. Um, So we should move on because we have three jams to discuss from uh, Fall Tour and the New Year's Run, which you mentioned the reign of Summer Tour. I think one thing to note as well about Summer Tour is it is an incredibly strong tour, but at the time it was slightly controversial because they played a very tight rotation. And within that tight rotation, you got some jams, but you got a lot of repeats across the shows. If you look at the set list, it's a very kind of unique thing. It's they tightened up the rotation. There weren't a ton of bust outs, not a ton of rarities, which we were used to in 2012. Kind of anything could be played in 2012. In 2013, it became much more tight, much more focused. And so while I think a lot of people look back on the 2013 Summer Tour with fondness, you have big things like the Tahoe Tweezer, the Bill Graham shows are really good, the Hollywood Bowl, Harry Hood. The Dix run was a little bit underwhelming. And I think people went into Fall Tour. This is our first Fall Tour since 2010. People were very, very excited about that. It was a very classic venue run. But I don't think people knew exactly what to expect out of Fish at that point in time. To that point, 2013, it seemed really good with some really important moments, but also with some down moments as well. And as we're going to discuss here, Fall 2013 very quickly became... One of the best fish tours of all time. And I put it up there with summer 2015 and fall 2021 and now spring 2023 as the best tours of the 3.0, 4.0 era. Um, So the first jam that we want to discuss from this is our favorite tweezer of 2013, the Hampton, Virginia, Hampton Roads, Virginia tweezer. 23-minute stunning atmospheric interstellar Ira Kaplan-esque exploration off of the song Tweezer. Dave, what are your thoughts on this version of Tweezer?
0: I think that especially when it switches to the minor key and it gets... When it goes minor, Trey, you talk about channeling Ira Kaplan. He's not really... He's playing power chords. He's playing these like chunky walls of feedback. He's not really taking the traditional trey fingers flying mixolydian type solos. It's gets chunky. It almost the tempo is kind of slow. To, it's almost like a take me to the river type feel to it. Mm-hmm. And he's just putting up these clouds of noise, which gives it like a real. Indie rock, kind of mid 90s Matador Record shoegaze feel like you're talking about with like Ari Kaplan from Yola Tango. And uh, that makes it very cool. And like the last three minutes are sort of like a very quiet fade out. So you kind of get your usual funking, very tight 2013 tweezer, which eventually goes into something much more sinister and extremely interesting. Versus whereas Tahoe Tweezer, I mean, it's great. Got nothing but good things to say with the Tahoe tweezer. It's got really magical fleet finger tray peaks, all the woos, but he also gotta kind of wade through a whole bunch of muck to get there. Whereas I think like probably the Hampton tweezer probably covers just as much ground in a little bit less time.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm in a lot of agreement with you there. I I mean the, the the Tahoe tweezer is one of the most important and one of the best fish jams of all time. I don't think either one of us Want to uh, dissuade right. you from from considering that and listening to it if you haven't in a long time, the 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 segment around twenty three to twenty seven minutes is some of my favorite fish ever and some of the most locked in interconnected fish with their audience. Um, the Hampton Tweezer has that darkness, it has that edge, it has some really risky playing from Trey that I think if the entire band is not locked in as the way that they were, a lot of that doesn't work and it almost sounds composed from the jump. And then it has that closing segment that sounds like a preview of the song Wingsuit. And it sounds like the band is just like playing around Wingsuit and trying to just like breathe in what those songs and what that vibe is going to be to the audience to almost like prepare the audience for what it was going to be like 11 days later when they finally unveiled it. Um, This kind of gets me thinking a lot about, you know, 2013 is this year that really highlights the big picture of what is fish mean. And it gets me thinking about Tweezer's impact. Because if you think about Tweezer across 2013, you know, starting at the tail end of 2012, you get that amazing MSG version that picks up all the jamming styles from Dick's. And then going ahead into the summer, you get this really cool little version from um, uh, Alpharetta that I really like that is deeply underrated. Yeah. You get the Tahoe version. Uh, you get the Hampton version. You get um, the Helping Dog Jones Dogs. Beach. Jones Beach, excuse me, has a really good 13 version. 13 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes into cities. Um, you get the Helping Dog version from Hartford that uh, is one of Dave's va- favorite jams of all time. Um, and then you get a very underrated version on 11.2 that just for whatever reason has flown under the radar. But I'm curious your thoughts on the idea of how, like Tweezer has been the Eternal Jam vehicle. Unlike, say, David Bowie or Mike Song, Tweezer cannot be played without a jam. Structurally. Like, could you imagine if they just started playing seven-minute Tweezers? I guess they could, but it is the eternal jam vehicle. And if you look at any era, the emergence of 92, 93, 94, 95, when they're really discovering how to jam, the funk of the late 90s and the groove of late 90s, the the scuzz of 2.0... And then even when they came back in 3.0, Tweezer from the start um, became this jam vehicle. Camden 09 has a big one. Red Rocks 09 has a big one. Miami 09 has a big one. And all the way up until today, where we just had a 44 minute version that was one of the best versions of all time from Berkeley. It's this song that has always charted the band's jamming history. I'm curious what your thoughts are on our, on how this song impacted Fish both similarly and differently across the 1.0 and 3.0 eras.
0: I think at 1.0 it was um I don't almost felt like just another part of the rotation in in play 1.0 because obviously it had amazing jam as 1.0 it's what they used in fall uh in summer 1995 really out there that was always the portal to the really abstract exploration of uh, summer 1995 but also because of 1.0 there were so many more shows that they just ended up playing it more because it happened more hit more in the rotation more set one tweezers I think because of the frequency with which it was played and the fact that they really they hadn't broken up yet because it was still 1.0 While it was still um, a vehicle for exploration, it wasn't quite the cause of celebration that it is in 3.0. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, I get that. It was kind of like, it was just a part of the DNA of the era that they're going to play Tweezer regularly and Tweezer's going to be like one of the jamming vehicles. Whereas I think with a lot of fish, there still is a sentiment when they play certain songs that spark memories for people, that there was a point in time where they thought they would never hear fish play new music again. And I think tweezer is one of those. And I think a lot of the versions and the way that they've dedicated significant time to really showcasing their jamming capabilities through tweezer, thinking just about Tahoe, about the Hampton version, about, um, Msg 2019 and about um, Berkeley 2023, just to name a couple very, Alpharetta. very versions. Al- Alpharetta, Alpharetta 2021. 2021, Shoreline 2021, and and you know these are just scratching the surface. I mean Tweezer is even when it's played for 15 minutes, it is sometimes one of the most special jams of a, of an era. I think about Six Eighteen 2010, an incredible version that I saw that led to the double Twee prize in Hartford uh, 2010. Um, you know, there's there's so many. Um there is definitely a sense now that it is a celebration that when tweezer happens, this is the band hinting to us that remember who we were and think about who we are now and who we will be in three to five years, all of that's gonna be contained in this jam. All of our past, our future, our present influences are all gonna happen in this jam. And it just, it ends up being a really special moment. Um, was this a taking care of business show? This is a taking care of business show. This was a, a dinner and movie oh. show from a couple of years ago. Um, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. Um, this, this along with probably six other shows could have been mentioned as in my favorite shows that we talked about here recently. Um, I just, I absolutely love everything that happened. The second set is so fluid, the incredible golden age. Um So we wanted to talk as well about the Carini from Halloween 2013. So this comes in the third set. The band plays. Not a very good first set on Halloween 2013. Just a kind of hodgepodge collection of songs that no one really wants to hear is the only kind of, it can be like the throwaway song of a set. But then all of them are together. It was a very strange way to start Halloween. And then um, they played Wingsuit in set two. Very controversial moment. And then they came out for set three and they played a huge 14-minute version of Ghost and then a 19-minute version of Karini that stands up as some of the best jamming of the era. And thematically sounds a lot like what I think of when I think back to 2013 Fish, which we'll talk about here in a second. But I want to frame this, because we are talking about 2013. How do you think, Dave, that Wingsuit impacted Fish?
0: I think it was important. I think that they had to do it. I think that part of 2013 was able to prove to themselves that they were still able to get in that gear. In addition to the live show, by putting together uh, Wingsuit, which eventually became the Fuego album, that proved to themselves that they were still able to write new, interesting music and present it to their audience. So when I found out from the fish pill that night that they were going to play an album from the cover themselves, cover an album from the future, being Wingsuit, I thought, oh, that's fucking cool. These guys are in it to win it, and they trust their audience, and they want to do a whole new record of all new material in the sacred Halloween cover band set of course jam band fans are like a lot of things one thing they don't like is a change in their sacred traditions mm-hmm. <laughs> so jam band fans don't like change their traditions and to this point fish halloween meant a cover set so covering themselves or playing a whole record of new material pissed a lot of people off i thought it was pretty cool um some of the songs in that set that didn't make it up on didn't make it to Fuego, didn't make it to Fuego with good reason.
1: I don't necessarily disagree. Like, I think that the decision to play that wingsuit second set was a very controversial one and a one that. Um, did not come lightly, and I have to imagine that the band had conversations that they were going to probably piss off a lot of people, but felt that they had to do something artistically to push themselves, challenge themselves, really put themselves out there, and I don't think that they could have done it any better than they did then. Um, I was a... reading
0: stuff saying, like people are saying, eat a peach, it's in the bag. I've talked to this guy, that guy, I talked to Kuroda, eat a peach, it's in the bag, it's happening, I know it's going to happen.
1: No, it would have been great, but I think that oh, yeah. the decision to play wingsuit and to put themselves out there so nakedly in that moment impacted the decision the following year to do the chilling, thrilling sounds of Halloween. It impacted all of the songwriting that has come since two years later. We got one of the greatest dumps of fish songs in fish history with 2015 uh, 2017, we got some new excellent songs as well. 2015, of course, is Blazon, No Man in No Man's Land, Mercury, Mercury. a few other songs. 2017, you get Everything's Right, you get um, uh, Leaves, you get um, a bunch of other songs that I'm blanking on at the moment. Uh, 2018, you get Coswell Vox. 2019, you get Trey's Ghost of the Forest. 2020, you get Lonely Trip. 2021, you get all the Lonely Trip and Ghost of the Forest songs fully immersed in fish set lists.
0: The fact that you're pulling this off the top of your head, that's why we podcast. This is amazing.
1: That's it. Um, I counted it at one point. Fish debuted somewhere between 90 and 100 songs from 2013 all the way through the present day. Um, And this is all the more impressive that they really weren't debuting new songs in 2011 or 2012. You know, 2009 had all the Joy songs, uh, 2010 had some new songs introduced, but 2011, 2012 has like one new debut and I believe it's just Steam. Um, maybe one or two mic songs that weren't left on the cutting room floor after a few shows, but they debut all these new songs and it has led to the songwriting renaissance that has fueled the band. And you think about jumping into the Carini, one of the things that the Carini signifies to me at this point in time is the emergence of new jam vehicles. And if you think back to 2009, 10, 11, 12, a lot of the jams came out of very standard places. They had, from a new standpoint, they had light and sometimes back down the number line. But most of the time, if you were gonna get a jam at a fish show from 09 to 2012, it was coming out of rock and roll, it was coming out of drowned, it was coming out of Tweezer, it was coming out of Dalmond Disease, occasionally a song like Sandwich Jam. But you weren't getting these jams out of really weird places. And starting in 2013, you get a song like Carini that is really emerging as a significant jam vehicle. It has jammed a couple times in early 3.0, but here is when it like sets its roots, that when Carini is played, it is going to jam. And you hear this band starting to incorporate other songs into the jamming slots, which diversifies their overall playing, and it allows them the opportunity to really focus on new song is about to debut, new song is going to jam. So, you get Blazon as a huge jam. You get Fuego as a huge jam. Uh, you get Everything's Right as a big jam. No Man in No Man's Land. Ruby Waves. All these songs, Set Your Soul Free, Soul Planet, all these songs that are debuted over the coming years are debuted with the intention of taking the spot or adding to the spot of a Down with Disease, a tweezer. And so, as a result, a lot of songs are brought to the fore, and those songs become jam vehicles and inform the overall. Um, uh, the overall uh, approach to a fish show, but Dave, what are your thoughts on this Karini? And what are your thoughts on kind of the the best parts about it?
0: This Karini is pure joy. This is just joy personified. This is Trey Anastasio playing A major curly cues just throughout the whole thing. This is the Keebler Elves dancing around their oak tree, making up the badass fucking E.L. Fudge Cookies. This is just, I can't listen to this Korean without getting giddy. I mean, this almost has the types of giddy melodic peaks that you got for them Down at the Z's that they played two days earlier. Um, no, it's one of, easily a top ten version of the song that, like you say, became a huge jam vehicle in 2013 and then really continued to do so thereafter. Um, trying to think of some other incredible ones off the top of my head. Dick's 2017, the first yeah. night, second set had an unbelievable Carini. Um, oh, of course, um, San Francisco 2021 Encore. That's my favorite Karini <laughs> of all time. That's my number one Karini. This one from Atlantic City is probably, probably number two or three. But yeah. Um, in addition, this version, it's great how unadorned Trey's guitar is. This just goes back to guitar. I've been his tune screamer and fingers. Like, I don't really think of much in the way of effects on this song at all. This is just pure, pure virtuosity on this Carini.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of something that we were talking about. Like, you know, Trey's playing was so different at this point in time. It was not reliant in any sort of way on um, effects, it was what can I play melody wise? how can i make that sound and how can i communicate with the other band members and so you had less like i'm going to try this effect and i'm going to throw this riff out there and okay this riff is going to be infused by this effect and then here's another effect on top of it so the riff changes a little bit it was just riffage and it was communication with the other band so you get a lot of rhythm guitar which we're going to talk about in the next jam here but you get Two like very virtuoso, very fast, aggressive type playing mixed with very clean rhythm guitar that makes you hear exactly what is kind of coming out of Trey's Trey's mind. It's literally just like his mind to the guitar, this clean, if he makes a mistake, you're going to hear it as clearly as possible. But when he's on, you're going to hear him play and like ring out like a bell in a really, really amazing way. So um, when I listen back to this, because you hear Carini go from being dark into light and you hear this almost being the celebratory, kind of like the twist the next night, the celebratory, like, oh, my God, we fucking did that. I can't believe we just played 12 new songs on Halloween for all our fans. We're throwing down both for them as well as for us, because we just got to play some fucking music, and you get it out of this ghost and this Karini.
0: Absolutely. So we've got one more of our our discussion here before we get into uh, some other 2013 albums, Non Fish Division. So the last of the segments we're going to discuss here are the uh, is the Down with Disease from master Square Garden on uh, December 29th, 2013. The only show this New Year's run I did not attend. I was at the first show and uh, night three and night four, but I had dinner at a very nice Italian restaurant with friends as a favorite to my wife this night.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was the best night of the run. So yeah. <laughs> although New Year's Eve was, was good. Fun. Yeah.
1: I like to use Yeah,
0: no, yeah, definitely, yeah. Super fun, but in yeah. terms of the in depth shit, this is the best night.
1: This was, and this also is the night where it became apparent that they were going for a no-cover approach to New Year's Eve. Um, aside from Auld Lang Syne, throughout the entire New Year's Eve run, they only played Fish originals. And they notate this, they come out for the second set, and they open up with this disease. And as they're doing the bass swirl, it turns into this really beautiful... Melodic interplay between Trey and Mike, a jamming space I would just kill for them to get to at some point in another jam, and they wind it down, and Trey goes, Thank you, We wrote that, and then oh Mike right starts Bef, up Bef. <laughs> and then Mike starts up a uh, disease that's right
0: before the set actually starts, right that's right
1: <laughs> which that gets me thinking a lot about like you know. I was talking about this a bit, the wingsuit segment, how focusing their new songs during this run kind of refocuses and redefines the goal of 3.0. I was thinking about like going forward from here, there is such a focus on their material and on, on the songs that they've written. And I believe going into summer 2014, the first five or six shows of that summer there's no covers whatsoever. It's not until, aside from like the Star Spangled Banner on July 4th, it's not until like the second night of The Man when they play, I think, Cross-Eyed and Painless that they finally are just like, screw it, let's bring covers back into the mix. (laughs) And so like this kind of influences this band to, you know, they release a new record the next year and it kind of aids in this influencing of how do our songs impact who we are. And at the end of the day, who we are as a band are our songs. Our songs are what defines us. The jamming is one thing. The jokes are one thing. But the reason why people come and see us more than other bands is because of the great songs that we've written and the, and the way that those songs can interact with each other. What are your thoughts on that on, on just like how they approach this New Year's run and how that's impacted them from just a focus on the song standpoint?
0: Um. I agree. I think that it was a statement of being around for 30 years. This is 2013, a 30th anniversary. I think it especially came to light, and we were uh, touching on how New Year's Eve was particularly fun, and meaning the second set being the JEMP truck set, where they literally took like a circa 1988-89 setup on top of a truck and played some super classic Fish originals. Really, with just like minimal jamming, just emphasizing what a fish set would have been like in 1988 in Boulder, Colorado, yeah. or something yeah. like that. That was kind of you know just like a throwback to the excellence of their songs. But no, you're absolutely right. Is that the reason that the people gravitate to this band is that the songwriting is second to none in like jam band world? Like obviously, the talent is there, the instrumentation is there, everything. All the virtuosity, but without the songs, it means nothing. And it still goes back to me being a kid in summer camp, listening to Long Boy and Pitch Your Nectar over and over. And there weren't any jams in those records,
1: just incredible songs. Right, right. Those songs were the vibe. That was why, that was why yeah. I felt like I was coming back to this band before I ever got into the jams.
0: With regard to this with Disease, I probably, I loved it at the time kind of forgot about it in preparation of this podcast i probably listened to it about six or seven times in the past two weeks and i still can't like memorize it it's interesting it's very melodic it covers a lot of ground and just on just around 20 minutes but it's sort of it is what it isn't that i can't really put a finger on what makes it good except that it is
1: it's funny because i have the opposite with i i feel like i have this memorized note for note and part of it is that like I just was immediately connected okay. to this jam. This jam to me, it kind of sounds like the rock and roll in a sense that we talked about where it, it has like a type 1.5 feel to it. It always feels like it's within like a hair of Down With Disease and they ultimately return to the Downward Disease riff in a really celebratory way that just is like a massive, massive moment at MSG. But To me, the moment that I absolutely love the most out of this jam is when everything gets really quiet and Mike does his kind of bass growl and it just envelops the entire room. And then he does this like, and you just hear the entire space. Like it's so good to listen to on an odd, but you can hear the entire room just like react to the fact that the band is just like pushing out sound and noise and groove, but it's so quiet in a room of 20,000 people. And it's the type of moment that feels like they know exactly how to play in Madison square garden and they attack it um, intentionally. And they play it in a way that like, if you are, if you work at Madison square garden and you see a lot of bands come through and you see a lot of sports come through you probably don't hear a lot of bands that know how to play Madison Square Garden the way that Fish knows how to play it, that like treats it like an extra instrument that they get to play with for however many nights that they're there. And you really hear them understand how to play Madison Square Garden in this run or in this jam.
0: Absolutely. This uh, this run, remember Trey, he added an Echoplex to his rig. So... Not so much in Down with Disease, but certainly in the Carini, which comes next. The excellent Down Low Carini. Lots of Echoplex. Lots of loops again and again. I remember he first introduced that, I think, on the 28th, the night before. And everyone was like, oh, someone brought Trey, uh, Santa brought him an Echoplex for Christmas. I don't even think it lasts until 2014. It's just all over the New Year's 2013 run, and then it's gone.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of the first pedal that is introduced to really fuck with Trey's sound and like in the 3.0 period. And nowadays we're used to his his rig, you know, changed so much since 2013 in terms of the amp he uses in terms of the way that he set up his pedals in terms of the pedals that he actually uses, that it's almost like a whole new system that he's playing with nowadays. You think back to these kind of like simpler times of 2013 and like the Plex almost represents while that effect didn't really linger in Trey's catalog in, in Trey's rig, it kind of signifies this period where he is moving into Let's collect effects and see how these effects change my overall sound and change the sound of the band in a really cool way. And you kind of start to hear it in this Down with Z's, but especially this Carini. Um, So we got four jams here. We have anything else we want to say about 2013, Fish? Any final thoughts that you have?
0: 2013 was the year for me that I was fully back on board with Fish. It started in 2012. My toe back in the water after kind of losing touch from 09 to 2011. But 2013, I was 100% back with this band. I think I saw, I think I saw like 10 shows in 2013. It was like, that's more than I usually see. And given definitely the most until uh, 2021, because 2021 obviously had like the four, um, no, I'm sorry, 2022 which had summer tour it had the four shows at Madison Square Garden because of the canceled New Year's run so I saw a lot of shows in 2022 until then 2013 was the most I'd seen in one single year for fish so I was I was back on board and the band was back on board and let's hear a mashup of these jams as we have so diligently discussed
1: Deep here year into 2013 And we wanted to turn the tide a little bit because 2013, lifestyle-wise, was a huge year for us, but also music-wise, as we went back and started looking at our top albums list from 2013 and we started to remember the storylines of the year, it was a really fascinating year for music. And it was kind of one of our favorite podcasts, IndieCast, talks about as it. kind of like that shift year in the 2010s where Poptimism becomes a huge thing, and um, you know from a from a music standpoint, there's a lot of indie pop bleed and there's a lot of really cool sounds and bands that emerge. And in some cases it feels like it turned the page towards the modern age. and in some cases it feels like it was a completely different era all to itself. But I'm curious, Dave, broadly, who were you in 2013 and how has life changed for you in the last 10 years? Who am I,
0: John <laughs> Val Two four six. No, anyway, little Andrew Lloyd Webber for you. Um, 2013. I look back on 2013 in my life with extreme fondness and rose-colored glasses because this was this was the last full year that I was not a dad. Um, we had our first daughter in October of 2014. Now, while some people will say, like, every day I've had my children is the greatest day of my life, and I get that, totally. Being a dad is awesome. But I also kind of long for the time when, you know, you have less responsibilities, you look back on things with nostalgia. So, I mean, 2013 was cool for me, because that was, uh, I think, in anticipation of becoming parents. That was the year... My wife and I took a nearly two-week trip to uh, Paris and Belgium. Did not get to go to uh, Amsterdam on that trip, but we definitely uh, saw Brussels, Paris, other parts of France. That was an unbelievable trip. That was in October of 2013. And just, um, God, I mean, Fish is playing, as we discussed very well in 2013 Um, my law practice was really kind of starting to take off in 2013 and I can't discount the fact that um, the big scary orange man who eventually become president which is the glimmer wasn't even on anybody's radar no one even the scariest politician 2013 was like John Boehner like what the hell that wasn't scary (laughs) at all Obama had just been elected president back in 2012 in a landslide, beating Mitt Romney. I mean, it seems like I liked that year because I was my beard was a lot browner than it is now; it's grayer, had less gray hair, uh, did not have the responsibilities of caring for an eight and a four-year-old. Fishes playing out of their minds. I went on some great trips. And it felt like American democracy was a lot more stable than it is now, so it was ten years ago, but it kind of feels like it was thirty years ago. So how has my life changed? Yeah, it's changed for the better. I mean i uh I have the father of two beautiful girls. I own an apartment, I still listen to lots of music, still doing lots of adult decisions. love my wife very much, but uh a lot more responsibilities than I had in 2013. And there were some fucking great records, which we will discuss.
1: Yeah, very similar. I I spent the majority of the year of 2013 from March 1st through the end of the year into early 2014 living in South Korea. Um, My wife and I made a decision when we were getting married in late 2012 that we wanted to make a pretty big lifestyle change. We sold everything we owned. We hit the road for a couple of months and then, flew back to South Korea to teach English. Um, Anyone who's ever done it knows that um, the experience of teaching in Korea allows you the opportunity to live a pretty decent lifestyle uh, and kind of hop around um, East Asia, Southeast Asia. So we, we lived over there. We ran a marathon. We had a really formative year, just the two of us basking in the glow of being newly married. Um, We dove into Korean culture. We ate a lot of awesome food. We went to Japan. And we started 2014 with a four-month backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. It was an amazing experience. It was one of the best experiences of my entire life. And um, all things that I could absolutely not do uh, at this point in my life. (laughs) Um, And from a political standpoint, I'm right there with you. Like I remember getting really upset about things. It was my first year kind of being on Twitter um, like really on Twitter. But I remember... Um, it's
0: like, ugh, that John Boehner's such a meanie.
1: Yeah, and there were, you know, it was kind of the emergence of, um, uh, at least on a broader scale, like the Black Lives Matter movement and that, I think, woke a lot of people up into kind of issues that were happening in the country that were permeating beyond the surface. 2013, obviously, was the Boston... Marathon bombing, um, it was, but it was relatively, there was a, I think a big debt ceiling crisis and there was, um, government shutdown that Ted Cruz was behind that felt like a huge deal at the time. There were a lot of hints at what was to come in terms of turmoil in the country and in terms of political discourse and in terms of political chaos, um, that that would that would emerge and and as you noted um trump's kind of emergence two years later makes a lot of sense in hindsight but it also felt really dramatic um because 2013 was a little idyllic and so i look back on and i kind of wish we could figure out a way back to a period like this where the stresses felt much less uh significant since then though my life has I've had two kids. Uh, I've moved back from Asia to just outside of D.C. Um, moved to Denver, Colorado. Um, had a lot of big life craziness that have happened in the years since then. You talk about gray hairs. Like I see it on the side of my head in a way that even five years ago I wasn't seeing. I see it in my beard starting to emerge. I'm five years behind you, I think. And so I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, on, on the other side, I still have some of the brown hair, but it's going to change here in the next couple of years. I just know it's going to happen. I can feel it happening. Um, I wouldn't trade where I'm at right now for anything, but when I look back on 2013, I kind of wish I had the perspective I have today at that point in time, because I had it really good back then. I had it really good and I would not necessarily change the way I approached things back then, but I think I would at least spend a little bit more time reflecting on how good it was at that point because it's about to get a lot more intense and crazy and stressful. Um,
0: Matt Harvey started the All-Star game in 2013 at City Field.
1: That was the City Field All-Star game. Absolutely yep. right. that, was, um, that was the last year I kind of remember thinking the Cubs are still in a long extended rebuild. 2014 wasn't a great Cubs year, but by the end of the year, there were f- glimmers of hope. Hendricks had come along. Anthony Rizzo was really coming along. We knew that we had Chris Bryant coming. We knew we had Javi coming. I saw Javi's first home run uh, at Wrigley Field. Um, We signed Lester by the end of 2014. 2013 was kind of the last time that there was, to me, there was Cubs baseball and then baseball baseball. After that, the Cubs became a professional baseball team in a way that has been a part of my life ever since. So, Let's get into these albums. Um, we've each selected four albums that represented a lot for us in t- 2013 and that we think represented kind of the best of the music that we were listening to through that period in time. Um, Dave, what is your first album, any album on your list that you have selected that you would like to uh, talk about here for 2013?
0: I'm going to talk about uh, a band that was a huge deal, at least in the indie world, in 2013. They played a lot of shows that year, I think, at CMJ, a lot of shows here in New York, really built a big head of steam. They played Pitchfork Festival. Actually, 2013 was the only time I got to see uh, Pitchfork Fest, which also coincided as the uh, same week that Fish was in Chicago, so I got to go to Pitchfork Fest and drag my wife to her only Fish show. (laughs) That was the one with the 23-minute harpua. So my wife's only show was a 23-minute harpua. So the band I'm talking about is called Savages. The album is called Silence Yourself. This was a fiery, angry, all-female rock band that kind of and the in between point of like Slater Kinney and Joy Division, because they were a good, angry post punk band throwing up clouds of noise and sound with very excellent heavy lyrics from their front person, uh, the front woman named named Jenny Beth, and the rhythm section was tighter than a bank vault. Incredible live band. I got to see them three times, and they raised a huge racket with this one record. This is probably. Possibly my favorite album in 2013. Not far off. I listened to this record a ton. They put out two very good records and then Vanished from the Face of the Earth. I think uh, Jenny Beth, she puts out some not very good solo stuff, but the rest of the band members have been scattered to the wind. I think the drummer actually has a project, but we're not going to get another Savage record ever again. So kind of... um, a bit of a flash in the pan over the course of two records, but two excellent records. And for heavy, angry post punk, that's where you go.
1: Yeah, this is one of those records that is just right up your entire alley. And when I think oh, yeah. about um, <clears throat> when I think about this band, I think immediately about you. This is a record. It came out. Uh the review on Pitchfork was from uh, May sixth, twenty thirteen. So as we're recording, just about ten years ago, this is an eight point wow. seven best new music. Do you know who wrote <laughs> the review for this?
0: Let me think. In twenty thirteen an eight point seven for a savage's record. Um just Jason Green.
1: Close. Uh Lindsay Zolads the uh, New York Times, oh. the new New York Times music critic. She's been there for a couple of years now. She's unbelievably one of my favorite music writers, and I remember reading a ton of Lindsay Zolads, uh, during this period in time from Pitchfork.
0: I know Lindsay well, because she got her start at, uh, at Coke Machine Glow. We were... Right. We wrote together, but unlike me, she took that writing to a much bigger, bolder, more awesome place. But yeah, she's awesome.
1: She's incredible, and She writes just like this, this album review has like 50 words that are all caps in it, which is kind of the only way that you can describe this band. But yeah, the rhythm section, uh, for this band is some of the just like most aggressive post-punk drumming that I've ever heard. I absolutely love it. And I just remember this being like, uh, it was one of those records that just like when it came out, it hit hard. And even being across an ocean from America, like I could feel the energy from this uh, from this album over there.
0: You know who loved this record was Greg Cott and Jim guys for this. Oh yeah, uh, their podcast, their podcast Sound Opinions. I think like Jim DeRogatis was convinced that like he was like responsible for breaking Savages in like America. He was. Huge Savages fan, almost to the point where it's kind of disturbing. But he, uh, they were, they were on Sound Opinions, the guitarist and the lead singer, and they were kind of like, didn't know what to make of the fanboying out of the Sound Opinions hosts. But I get it. It's a great fucking record.
1: It's a really good record. And, um, transitioning, my first record is, um, One of my favorite records of the 2010s, my number two favorite record of 2013, and that is Deer Hunters' Monomania. Um, I went back and I listened to this album along with all these records, but I listened to this record in preparation for this podcast because I was trying to figure out, I had so many albums from 2013 that I loved. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to really focus on, and this one just was a no question for me. Um, This mixes kind of scuzzy rock and punk and surf rock with the atmospheric melodies that really define some of the best of deer hunter. And they followed up their previous record to this was Halcyon Digest of 2010. Um, my number two album of the 2010s, uh, one of my favorite records of 2010, this record feels a bit less ambitious than Halcyon Digest, but it, really just like digs into you with some of the best songwriting from this band um two three minute rock songs that when you listen to them over and over again you hear this like noise and the production value behind the um uh distorted guitars and just really heavy garagey drums and brandon cox's lyrics that are almost unrecognizable this is just i mean i think it's the last best deer hunter album. And I think it is when I listen to this record, I think back to 2013, where it seemed almost like anything was possible musically. And it seemed as though anything was possible in terms of, uh, like where we could go from a cultural standpoint, uh, with indie rock, it seemed like it was about to get bigger, um, um, at that point in time than, than could have been imagined. And in some cases it has, and in other cases it hasn't, but it felt like this record that if, if this could have larger appeal, anything in indie rock could have larger appeal. And so when I listen back to this album, um, I just get, I get chills. I think about myself, um, running through Osan, South Korea and the rice paddies of the summer 2013. And I just, um, uh, I miss it, miss it immensely. What are your thoughts on this record?
0: I like Bonamania. My problem is I like Halcyon Digest so goddamn much mm. that mm. to me Monomania almost sounds like a response to Halcyon Digest because that record, it almost crossed over the mainstream. Yeah. And Monomania was saying, uh-uh, that's not what we're about. It was almost almost like a Neil Young swerve. Like To yes. me, it felt yes. like one, a record that... Neil Young would have put out in like 82 or 83, like uh, Everybody's Rockin' or Trans or one of those like, you know, purposely good, but purposely commercially lo- lo- like difficult. So yes. Say, you want me to zig? Well, I'm going to zag. And I think that also it ended up coincide with, didn't he play like some shows that were kind of, I don't know if he had like nervous breakdowns on stage, but it would just be like he would, Play Monomania the title track for like 20 minutes at a time and kind of like flip out on talk shows like it was a bit of um yeah it was a step in the opposite direction from House and Digest
1: Yeah it almost um on a more aggressive scale cuz the Neil Young comp is is excellent um, I, I I totally agree it kind of reminds me of um like Wilco following up Yankee Hotel Foxtrot with a Ghost is Born where Yankee Hotel Fox is this big indie rock success moment. And then it almost feels as though Wilco's next album is going to be less mysterious, more pop-friendly, and more accommodating to a larger group of listeners. And instead, they follow up with this very murky, creepy, kind of dimly lit record that focuses on mental health, and it focuses on drug addiction and it sounds like a nervous breakdown and monomania kind of has that. There's that famous performance. I think it's yeah. from, is it from Colbert or is it from Conan where they play monomania and Brandon Cox, uh, Bradford Cox just walks off the stage and he's, and like doesn't tell his band what's going on. And like, they just keep playing. And then at some point they like stop. And it's just a very strange moment where it seemed like, The fame the band was about to get, he just wanted nothing to do with. And so he just like repelled it almost immediately, which economically, financially, I don't think was the best decision. But also I would imagine it was made out of uh, his inability to cope with it, which which sucks. Because the band could have had a very different 2010s if if that record or that period had really like stuck in a way that Halcyon Digest did.
0: I think 2013, was that the year that the Matthew McConaughey movie Dallas Buyers Club was released? hmm hmm Because, yeah, Brandon Cox had a role in that movie.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah he did. there was just a lot going on for him. Good movie. Very good. Um, 2013 had a lot of good movies as well. What's your next record?
0: Next record is one that I listened to today. I listened to a whole lot in 2013. And when I revisited today for the purpose of this podcast, I said to myself, oh, yeah, this is a near perfect record. I wasn't screwing around when I did this. And um, that album is Muchacho by Phosphorescent, a.k.a. the nom de rock of one Matthew Hook, who at the time was a thing living and rocking out in a loft in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, I think since then he relocated, started a family, relocated to Nashville, built a studio in there. But Muchacho is kind of like laid back. And it isn't even that laid back. It's like I think of this record as like a Sufjan Stevens record. It's almost like Backwoods Sufjan Stevens, in that it's heavily orchestrated alt country where Nothing is left to chance. There's like string arrangements, lots of other musicians. Like it's perfectly his project, but it's his baby. And out of all of his records, I think Muchacho is the one that his vision is the most realized. It's just got beautiful songs. Like you hear Song for Zula, which I think is actually kind of supposed to be like a love song about a gorilla, he said. It's got that like great string flutter. It's got his world-weary vocals that come in. He starts out kind of like quoting Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire. He's saying, okay, this is great. This is epic. And the rest of the album just gets better from there. In fact, Song for Zula was actually used in the final episode of the highly underrated America Ferrari TV sitcom Superstore recently. And just, God i listened to that album a ton it really kind of fit my mind at the time uh since then what phosphorescent put out a record in 2018 called c'est la vie which was pretty good and i think his most recent thing is he's kind of put out a handful of singles which are all covers so he hasn't followed up c'est la vie from 2018 and if you kind of want to get me disinterested in what you're doing, put out a bunch of singles that are all covers. Because <laughs> I can't be made to give a shit about that. Put out a fucking record, dude. You live in Nashville. It's like, what are you going to do in Nashville in your studio if not make another great Foster record record? Stop screwing around like the Dylan covers and just just make a record. Because Muchacho is great. And I know you love that record, right?
1: I love this record. This record, I have very vivid memories of waking up on a Saturday morning and jumping on Facebook, as one did in 2013, and someone posted song for Zula. I forget who. Um, I don't. Uh, I'd give you credit if I remembered who you were. Um, but uh, posted that song and was like, "This is like the epic anthem for the impending spring." And I was like, that is mm. quite a statement about a song. And spring was just starting in South Korea, although coming out of a very cold winter. And I just remember listening to the song, like the the, the flutter, the melody that's behind them, the kind of echo drums that like he hits the drum and just like the ch and his voice comes in and, it almost sounds like he's singing gospel. Like it, it like the, my first thought was that this was a old traditional song yeah. that he's just reinterpreting. It just sounds like a part of the musical universe um, already established. And every time I listen to that song, I get like kind of choked up. It just, it hits in such a uh, heavy way. And the album it's Americana, but it also has like this new spin on it. And it's like you said, it's very much his project. This record, um, every time I listen to it, it brings me back to 2013 and yet still has the capability to reveal itself in new ways as it's it's performed um, over and over again. It's a beautiful album, really relatable songs that feel narrative and feel very personal, but also could be personal to you, could be personal to me, could be personal to any listener out there. Um, I don't know. This is just an absolute classic from 2013 and one of those records that uh, is what convinces me that this is one of the, perhaps the last great year and and one of the great um, musical, cultural moments of our time.
0: Yeah, he played a lot of shows behind this record. He put out a live album. Like I think... He knew that he had to milk it for all he possibly could because it wasn't going to get any better than that. So,
1: so my next album, and I'm I'm just noticing as I'm going through, I'm pulling up the Pitchfork reviews just to see what what the the that site had about these albums. Um, so, Savages was Lindsay Zolad's reviewed it, um, eight point seven best new music. Uh, Monomania was Ian Cohen, eight point three best new music. Uh, phosphorescent was Jason green, 8.8 best new music and my record boards of Canada tomorrow's harvest by Mark Richardson, 8.3 best best new music. Um, we are in the midst of mm. some of the best writers at pitchfork writing together at the same time. And I really miss this era. Um, I really miss, Logging, you know, going on to Pitchfork, seeing a big album reviewed, and being like, and I know it's written by someone who is just like one of the best music writers I'm ever going to read. And so you get not only this great review, but you also get this deep, deep insight into that person. Um, This album came out in June 2013, but it sounded like winter. And the album cover looks like a winter cityscape. And for me, One of my biggest thoughts and all-consuming thoughts in the year 2013 was how I was going to survive the winter of 2013-2014. If you know anything about the Korean Peninsula, it it gets incredibly cold there in a way that I I was not prepared for at all when I went there the first time in 2009 and spent my first winter there. It is... uh, The wind howls constantly it is a cold that reaches into your bones. It is like, it is unlike anything I've ever experienced. I'm from the Midwest where it gets really, really cold in the winters. Um, And so listening to this album, this album sounds like winter and it sounds like a, a protective film in winter when you're, when you're trying to just like exist in the deadening space of winter and you have something like one like sheet to protect you. It's just like you're traveling alone through the winter of, uh, of, of, of South Korea. And when I listen to this album, it just takes me back to that like mindset and that time and place. But this is also, it's really, this was, you know, 2013 was this kind of year of big return records for artists. And so Boards of Canada hadn't put out an album since 2002 with... Um, Giogaddi, I believe. They had a couple EPs that came out in 04 and 05 as well as 06, but this was like their first big record since Giogaddi. Um and you know, it felt like a return for this band. This was also the year that My Bloody Valentine came back with their self-titled album, their first album since Loveless. Yes. The Knife came back with a, with a return album. Vampire Weekend came back with a return album. The National came back with a return album. A lot of bands who just hadn't made music in three, four, five, even 10, 15, 20 years was coming back and, um, and, and representing music to, to the world. And so this was a huge deal when it came out. And it just like, when I listen to it, I'm taken right back to Asia. So what is your next pick here for 2013?
0: Next pick is an album that would uh from an artist who would become a f- big favorite of my entire family, my daughter who had not been born yet, would end up being a big fan of this band and it would also end up being one of uh i think the first concert that we ever took her to that she was awake for. We took her to see um the mountain goods once so she was asleep in a crib uh no asleep in her. In her stroller, so she didn't really know what was going on. But this band is Haim, and it's their debut album Days Are Gone, which is an gorgeous, immaculately produced, extremely catchy tribute to 80s Fleetwood Mac. They're basically 80s Fleetwood Mac fantasy camp. But, what's great about Haim is that after that first record, they could have stopped, they could have fallen apart, but they have albums two and albums three, and each of them is better than the one that came before. They were just days are gone. It's got some great hits. It's got uh, the song Forever, it's got Fallen, it's got The Wire, all Stone Cold classics. But it was really just scratching the surface. Like we had didn't know in 2013 that Haim were actually gonna really be in this for the long haul and turn into like a legit touring unit that also happened to be very funny excellent at social media, also branching out into acting and just kind of being like this awesome three-sister Jewish factory from the San Fernando Valley who is beloved by Paul Thomas Anderson. So if I were good enough for P.T. Anderson, they're certainly good enough for you and me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love this album. The summer of 2013 is when I really started to get into them And then, um, my daughter, a few years later, after she is born and, uh, their second record, Something to Tell You came out. She told me one time, I think she was like five years old. She's like, Dad, Hyman are my heroes. So I'm like, I did something right. And probably the music she listens to the most nowadays are probably Hyman Taylor Swift. And that's great. She can listen to all the Tay-Tay she wants. I hope she doesn't expect to ever see her live, but, uh you know, that set notes entirely. So I know you've heard this record, Brian. Uh, What are your feelings about the first Heim album?
1: I love this record. I love this band. I echo everything you said. Um, They are, they're one of my son's favorite bands, which makes them become one of my family's favorite bands. They were a band that we talked about a lot when this podcast first started. I think that the music that they make is both timely and also slightly revolutionary while also being the kind of music that you can just kind of put on at any point in time. And you're just instantly happy. Um, they fall into that. We didn't really know it at the time, but that kind of eighties glossy revival that we all were craving that a year later, I'd really find a lot of love with, with the war on drugs when they put out lost in the dream. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of a, there's been a lot of a push over the last decade for synthesizers, gated drums, very echo, um, reverb induced vocals and, and instrumentation that I just can't get enough of. And so much Mm. so that like our, one of our favorite Young Jam Band's Goose plays a lot of songs in this vein, and I, every time I hear them play it, I think that they've got to be listening to Haim, they've got to be listening to The War on Drugs, they've got to be listening to Dream Pop and, and all the sounds of indie rock of the 2010s. And for me, this is one of those foundational records of the period. Um, just keeping with the theme of this episode here, the writer for this review on Pitchfork was Larry Fitzmorris excellent, excellent writer at Pitchfork. This was a best new music 8.3. So there's a bit of a, of a trend going on, but yeah, I love this album. Um, and I went back and listened to it on a Saturday afternoon over the last couple of weeks as we were prepping for this episode and I just felt happy, but there's also that sadness kind of within the music. And there's a lot of really, um, just kind of melancholic vibes to it that, uh, um, I I absolutely love revisiting and I think that what these girls did changed indie rock in a lot of cases for musicians like themselves in the sense that you could emerge out of a bedroom and you could emerge with a few singles and you could emerge with your siblings and it'd be taken really seriously because you were so talented and because you were able to uh, channel creativity in such a fascinating way. So I'm a huge, huge fan of this record, a huge fan of this band.
0: So what is... Next record that you are going to present to us.
1: So my next album is one of my favorite records of the overall year, which is you know kind of a theme that you're probably coming across here. It's Kurt Vile's "Waking on a Pretty Day's." This album came out in April of 2013, and I remember it coming out. I came out. I pulled up my phone threw it on and took a walk, um, from my school in Osan, South Korea and walked out to the rice fields and just listened. And I was just totally consumed by the guitar work, by the jamming, by the lyrical introspection. I had loved Kurt Vile for about four or five years at that point in time, really liked smoke ring for my halo loved, um, uh, what was his one before that? Uh, Childish Prodigy. Childish Prodigy. Thank you. And this came out reviewed on April tenth, twenty thirteen, by Jason Green. Best new music. Eight point five. We're just covering them all. Um, <laughs> this album just sounds. It's it's to me. You met. You referenced um, Neil Young when you were talking about Deer Hunter. This is. As classic of a Neil, as classic of a Bob, as classic of a Springsteen type of singer-songwriter record. I can't really find like a comp musically for those. But when I li- when I think about Kurt Vile, I think about this album in the same way that like when I think about Neil Young, I think about Tonight's Night. When I think about Dylan, I think of Blonde on Blonde. When I think about Springsteen, I think of The River or Darkness on the Edge of Town. This is the album that is Kurt Vile, every aspect of him. The dad the guitar nerd, the pedal geek, the storyteller, the slacker, the sunny side up but also kind of like sad and exhausted middle-aged guy. It all fuses together here in a way that when I press play and that first 10-minute track comes on, Waking on a Pretty Day, will play on the album title, I'm there, man. I'm I'm in the zone. All the way through Goldtown, I'm I'm right there. I love the solos, I love the effects. It's just this is put this album on. This is as classic rock of an album as I get.
0: Yeah, this is a great record. This to me is probably I think the last great Kurt Vile record. I think he's put out three since then.
1: Believe believe I'm going going down. down, Bottle it in. Bottle it in. And uh, watch my moves.
0: Yeah. Okay. So of those, I mean my favorite is probably the one that came before Smoke Wing for My Halo. But yeah, I mean Waking on a Pretty Days, excellent album. It's got two of my favorite Kurt Vile songs ever and Girl Called Alex and Too Hard. Um I remember being at a buddy's apartment in twenty thirteen in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. He had a backyard, he wanted to show off with like a grill. He just said, "Let's have like a boys' afternoon. No women. We'll just grill. We'll drink beer and we'll listen to a record." I'm like, "That sounds great." So the record he puts on, without me telling him to, is Kurt Vile "Waking on a Pretty Day,"s and that's just like the ultimate backyard barbecue type of record. Totally. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of like the most Kurt Viley of all the Kurt Vile albums in terms of giving you. Giving you everything you want. It's him at his peak. I mean, the ones he's put out since have all all been good. All had their moments, but I think he's kind of at the point where he's repeating himself to the point where it's a little bit detrimental. But it was like fresher back in twenty thirteen.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Like I I, imi- I initially did not like believe I'm going down. I loved bottle it in, and I loved watch my moves, but. None of them, I, I grew to like Believe I'm Going Down after a couple of years. I grew to like it. But none of them have ever like stuck as like, I have to listen to this record the same way that Waking on a Pretty Days did. And it almost feels like, you know, he put this record out and then a year later, Adam Grandsheil puts out Lost in the Dream with The War on Drugs. Right. And Kurt used to be in The War on Drugs. I mean, I've seen The War on Drugs play some pretty big shows and they've got a pretty amazing production. Kurt Vile's still playing small theaters and he's playing with the last time I saw him was 2019 and I really didn't like the band he was playing with. They just seemed like kind of amateur hour. It feels like this was the last time, you know, he and Adam are clearly really good friends, but it seemed like this was the last time where he kind of had the upper hand of that musical relationship in, in some ways. And well, he's made really good music since right. then. I think he has been a bit hampered by he just can't break through to that next level. In a way that, when he made um, "Smoke Ring" for my Halo, and then this, it seemed like he was on that trajectory.
0: He's gotten to the point where he can kind of sell out decent-sized theaters in the coast, in the Midwest. You're like you know two thousand, twenty-five hundred-seat theater, maybe have like some decent billing and like you know like a summer festival type thing. Yeah, He hasn't gotten to the level where his old comrade is.
1: No, it's, it's, I, I would love to see him really throw out the rule book and just try something completely different and just see what happens. But um, we need to turn towards your final pick because okay. it is a very special album, album that we both love immensely. It's a Stuart Berman-reviewed album. However, not Best New Music, just an 8.1. No Best New Music. I think if this record came out a little bit later in 2013, it would have gotten a Best New Music. What am I talking about here, Dave?
0: Yoli Tango's Fade. What a great record. This is like a late-era classic. I mean, they just put out another late-era classic this past like February in This Stupid World, which is probably their best record since Fade. Yeah. So who knows what it'll be in like another ten years. But uh yeah, I wrote about this album for Cope glow.com I lauded it. I said it was just a gorgeous production. Also, I think this was the first Tengo album in many years that was produced by someone other than uh than Roger Mutneau. They used John McIntyre, the drummer from Tortoise, very excellent producer in his own right. They produced they made the record at his uh, Soma Studios in Chicago. And it's, uh, you can tell, because it's got probably even some keyboards on it that Ira Kaplan's never used before, uh, just immaculately produced. It's just a very mature album. It kind of probably has the most parallels in their collection to the album and nothing turned itself inside out, especially side B in terms of kind of like late night, late night, like reverie type songs. Also, it had an added weight to it because the year before, every year Yola Tango plays like their Eight Nights of Hanukkah at uh, at, at Maxwell's in Hoboken. That closed and they do it at Bowery Ballroom but bear with me. So I think the year before, in 2012, there was an email sent out to people with tickets that said, like, Ira Kaplan saying, the shows will still go on, but they'll have a slightly different look because they had a bit of a health scare. I don't want to get into it. And so every one of those Hanukkah shows, he's playing sitting from a chair, and they brought in, like, uh, some, like, stunt guitars. Like, you still... Did a lot of rocking back and forth in that chair. He just didn't have like the weight of his like guitar and his guitar strap standing up. I mean, no one no one really knows. People speculate like a stroke or a heart attack or, or something along those lines. So it kind of imbues a little bit of weightiness to fade. I mean, it's not Fade doesn't qualify as one of the the classic like, oh shit, I almost died records. But, you know, there's definitely a pathos. Mm-hmm. That's there. And I thought, you know, this is like the last Yola Tango record. This would be a great curtain call, a great one to go out on, because the fact that they can still make excellent records this deep into their career. And since then, there's been a lot of other very good Yolo Tango records. Like I was just saying, Fade wasn't the end, but it was definitely a late career peak. And to me, one of the, the crucial albums of 2013...
1: Yeah, this record, I've listened to it a lot just in the calendar year because I've just been listening to a lot of um, 2013 overall um, just with, you know, the mindset of the anniversary. This record, man, like it sounds like classic period Yola Tango, but it sounds in the same way that like a late era, classic late era album is supposed to sound where it sounds like that artist, but it sounds like them with all of the years that have been weathered since then. Um, Yeah. You know, you think about um, like what Neil Young was making in the '90s, and and those records that sounded like the '70s classics, but they were this older. is
0: like this is very much like Sleepsuit Angels.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's got that vibe to it. Yeah. Um, the last time I saw Yellow Tango was on this tour. Uh, it was my last concert before I went to South Korea, and wouldn't see any concerts until Great Woods summer 2014 fish (laughs) so it was like an 18 month period where i didn't see any concerts aside from like webcasting um but i went and saw this and they did this cool thing on the tour where they had an acoustic first set and an electric second set and the first set they played the uh quiet version of ohm and then the second set they played the loud version of it and it was just you got a sense of what this album was doing for them where it was giving them both hard rockers and also really quiet songs. And when you listen to it now, 10 years on, it has the same impact that say, and then nothing turned itself out had uh, back in the early 2010s where it just sounds like a next period Yola tango record. But I totally agree at the time, it seemed like this might be their curtain call and it sounded like a perfect album to go out on.
0: Yes. The last song before we run would have been a great, Way to to ride off into the sunset, but I'm glad they didn't because they still tour often and put out great records. There's like almost no precedent for a band that old making. It's like fish; they're that old making new songs that are that good, playing shows that are that good. So that's the indie fish, and they both got started in like 1983, 1984 respectively. But yeah. And it's another, the, that's another the, podcast. <laughs>
1: right. The older I get, um, the more I want the Dylan and Neil Young model where an artist just keeps making music and goes through some down periods and then just kind of worksmanlike, workmanlike, just keeps making albums. I don't see Yola Tango stopping. Like they just put out one of the best albums of their career three months ago. Who knows what the next 10 years and hold?
0: Yeah, until they drop. Till uh Ira Kaplan's mother, she's I think she's ninety and she still comes out to sing during the Hanukkah shows.
1: Oh, it's amazing.
0: He's, he's he's got good genes. So keep
1: going. He's got good genes and yeah, I mean it's the same thing with you know, where fish is at right now. Just just give us more years. If you got if you got it in you, this is your job, this is what you're you know, set out to do in your life just play until you're, until you're done. And, um, I just want to follow the journey. And I feel that with Yola Tango, I'll listen to any Yola Tango album. Cause I just want to know what they do. Um, my last record, this is, this comes full circle. Okay. Because this is a album that was reviewed by Lindsay Zolads. We talked about with the Sav- Savages album received an 8.5 best new music when it was released and reviewed on September 17th, 2013. This is one of my favorite albums of fall 2013, and I believe this was my number three album of 2013 overall. And that is Bill Callahan's Dream River, his follow-up to his stunning 2011 record, Apocalypse. And his last record for six years, he wouldn't make another album until 2019's uh, Shepherd and sheepskin, sheepskin Vest. Yes, that's it. Great record. This is kind of the more personal companion piece to Apocalypse. Apocalypse was a very world-weary record, and it was a record about what was going on in America, and it was a record about um, disappointment on a larger scale, and it was a record about kind of this impending doom, and it feels almost like a prelude to where we are as a as a nation now when you listen to this record in 2011. Dream River is the sound of a man who has a weekend away, you know, has met a lady They're in a small town, maybe a little resort town, um, just sharing in the vibes of each other. And it is very much of a middle-aged man's love album. And I am authentic thousand percent here for it And it's kind of the last record he would make in this vein until uh or to this point in time because he had a child in the mid 2010s late 2010s and shepherd and a sheepskin vest is very much about the experience of fatherhood which is whereas this is very much still a lingering aging bachelor's album um this has some of my favorite songwriting of the overall year and some of my favorite guitar playing um, he is such a way with creating echo and space and reverb and really eerie melodies below the surface in a way that like, it sounds really simple, but when you start to listen to it on a deeper level and when you like try to play it, it's almost impossible. Cause he just, he is playing his own time and his own, uh, rhythm. Um, yeah. And Bill, you know, he put out, uh, a weird kind of dubstep follow-up to this album called have fun with God in 2014. And then he didn't put anything out until June, 2019. He put out shepherd and sheepskin vest, uh, September, 2020. He put out gold record, um, December, 2021. He put out blind date party with Bonnie Prince, Billy, and then October, which is an excellent record. And then October, 2022, he put out reality, which was one of my favorite records last year. I mean, he's done a lot here in the last couple of years, but this album was kind of like the end of the line for him before he um, he kind of spent most of the 2010s just like immersed in his own life and becoming a dad. And um, we're all the better for him him writing music uh, writing uh, yeah writing music here again.
0: And now, before we conclude, I'm just going to do a big mashup. We're going to hear it. Samples of some songs from the other records
2: that we just discussed. (laughs) See you and the You and a no, in to and I don't wanna turn around. Thank you.
1: Thank you all for hanging with us here like back into the world of 2013. Like I had a lot of time, a lot of fun, um, reminiscing on this year and thinking like about church. where my life is at and the music that meant a lot, both from a fish standpoint, as well as from an other fish st- another fish or other music standpoint. I hope you all got something out of this and at the very least got some jams and some music to dive into. Um, we are going to be back Tentatively, tentatively, if this, if this uh, episode comes out as expected on Tuesday, May 9th, if that's when you're listening to this, we are going to be back this month with another episode that we are very excited about. Um, without giving two months or much away, Fish played an excellent run of eight shows in April and we, we have a lot of thoughts. And we have another tour that we think that we can pair this with to talk a little bit about similarities of where the band was at, plus some awesome music to, to, to showcase. So if this comes out on May 9th, that will come out before the end of May. If this comes out on May, I believe it's 16th or whatever, this will come out in early, that will come out in early June. So um, my hope is that you guys get two BTP episodes this month. And then one, even in June, before summer tour hits and everything goes fucking haywire. But, um, keep an eye out for us. Thank you for everyone who keeps listening. Um, send in a review. If you would, it helps us a little bit from a rating standpoint and from a advertising spot standpoint. And we just love to hear from you all Hmm. send in a review, give us five stars, let us know what you think of the show. Give us some feedback, some improvement. We got thick skins at this point in time. you can, criticize us. You can praise us. You can casually talk about what we love to talk about in the show, like the war on drugs or goose, whatever it may be. Just give us your thoughts and feedback.
0: Yeah, definitely send us a review. Give us five stars because that helps boost the ratings in Apple land. The other day I was on my iPhone looking at podcasts, just clicking on like Apple music podcasts and thinking, wow, Most of these podcasts are terrible. Beyond the pond fucking run circles around this bullshit. (laughs) We're not on this list. So, Lord, we got to do something about that. We fucking do. Yeah, we absolutely fucking do. And you know it. So, thank you for uh, indulging us with the trip down memory lane of 2013. I had a good time doing this podcast and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Come back in hopefully two weeks. We'll uh, hold hands. We'll sing "Kumbaya." We'll discuss a really, really phenomenal Fish Spring tour. Just like highlights, highlights up the wazoo. Highlights of the port where you're taking them for granted, almost. And uh, we'll all go beyond the pond.